This is WHCL-FM, Clinton, New York. I'm Viva Horowitz. I'm the host of Significant Figures, and I'm here today with Associate Professor of Mathematics, Courtney Gibbons. Courtney, welcome. Why don't you talk to me about your math? Thanks, Viva. I'm so excited to be here. It's really nice to be considered significant. Math. Math is good stuff. So I study these things called modules, which are like vector spaces, which are things that you might have studied in linear algebra. But the thing is, the scalars are really weird, and they come from something called a ring. So I want to start by describing to you what a ring is. But first, I want to say that these things, these rings and modules, they were developed kind of to their full extent by Emmy Noether and David Hilbert while they were trying to do the math for some of Einstein's relativity theory. So this sounds early 20th century. It is. It's like 1890s to 1920s. And it's pretty cool. I will admit that as I was looking it up to try to, you know, excite you with the physics, I got sort of bored because I'm not a physicist. <laughs> but you should know that physics was the inspiration for a lot of the things that I study. Physics is a great inspiration for math. I like that. But I can understand you're, you're way over on the abstract side of the world. I am. And, and I, I want that application. Yeah, I mean, I, I like what you do. I like thinking about nanodiamonds, but I think I've described to you before how I visualize them as tiny little princess cut diamonds <laughs> with little, little like, you know, particles wearing them on their fingers. Like, oh, I'm so fancy. Oh, oh, we don't have much control over the facets of the nanodiamonds. I kind of figured that once you get to nano, things get a little weird and they're not adorable little gem gems anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I'm pretty far on the abstract side. So I get excited about patterns and symmetry, but in a very idealized mathematical way as opposed to a physical way. But this, these rings and modules, they do come from Einstein's relativity. He was interested in certain types of invariants. And Noether's famous theorem is a physics theorem, essentially, which you can probably state better than I can. It's about symmetries leading to... Things that are invariant under certain types of actions, is that right? Like time dilation. Yeah, uh, invariant's a good word. Translation by time. Or conservation. Conservation, yeah. Things that are the same in some way. Well, so that's what I like to study as well, but my things aren't things you could point to, like the speed of light. Now, I don't think they were actually working with the speed of light, but that's a nice example of an invariant because no matter where you are, no matter how fast you're going, no matter how close or far you are from the source of the light, the speed of light is constant and it stays the same. It's quite remarkable. My students make a list of which quantities are invariant and which quantities transform in special relativity. And the number of invariants is always so much smaller than the number of things that transform. What are some to... other invariants? There's something called the space-time interval. Okay. And it's a calculation that you can make about the distance physically between two events, but also the time that elapsed between the two events. And if you combine it just right in the mathematical way, that won't depend on your frame of reference. It's invariant. Got it. So what I imagine was happening, and don't take this as gospel because I really don't think about the physics very much, but I imagine that there was a way in which you think about the types of transformations you wanted to look at, like dilation, translation, maybe rotation, reflection. Those are things that a lot of chemists think about in terms of looking for symmetries. And you create a ring and you look for what doesn't change when you apply these different types of 
actions. So I think of these things as living inside of a group. And group is a small abstract mathematical object. It's a set of stuff. It could be a set of numbers. It could be a set of cats. It could be a set of functions, usually functions if you're thinking about groups doing something to something like, you know, shifting time around or rotating a physical object. And it has an operation. In the case of functions, you're composing them. So like if I have the function x squared and the function sine of x, I could compose those two functions and get sine of x squared or sine squared of x. Those would be two different compositions. And then you look at, you know, what stuff doesn't move when you plug in when you plug it into those functions. Like zero is something that doesn't move when I plug it into x squared and it doesn't move when I plug it into sine. It stays at zero. It stays at zero. So it would be invariant under the functions x squared sine of x and the composition of x squared and sine of x. And so Neuther and Hilbert were both trying to do the math to describe what things Einstein was interested in trying to describe and transform and figuring out what happens when you do those actions that thought of as group actions and what doesn't move and what does. And I'm pretty sure that's where that list of invariants comes from. It's from the math of this moves around and this stays put. Beautiful. That makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. I like the connection to special relativity. You know, that's the kind of thing that's going to get my excitement I up. thought you might. I prefer the connection. I mean, I like symmetries. And in fact, my modern algebra class, we just had a, a day where we played with symmetries. And so if you imagine a square, dear listener, imagine a square, and you label the corners from top left clockwise, one, two, three, four, there is a way in which you can do stuff to those corners and move the square by moving the corners that makes it still look like a square. And then there are things you do that try to not, not to unsquareify it. Like if I rotate and I send one to two and two to three and three to four and four to one, I've just rotated the square and it's still a square. Or if I try to flip it by sending one to two and three to four, now I've flipped it over a vertical axis and it still looks like a square. Like a mirror symmetry. Like a mirror symmetry. But if I try to just send one to two and leave three and four alone, I'm like trying to twist my square a little bit. Oh, the lines kind of end up crossing each yeah, other. Yeah, they do. And that's, that doesn't look like a square in the plane It anymore. looks like an hourglass. It does. It does. Or a little bow tie standing yeah. up on end. And then we should put a cat in the bow tie because that's adorable. But... <laughs> the, the study of groups is often the study of symmetries of different types of objects. And a beautiful story is actually the story we're telling in modern algebra, which is using groups to understand the roots of different polynomials and how you can swap roots around, uh, like the roots of a single polynomial around in such a way that they preserve some symmetry. And that's Galois theory. And it's the reason we don't have a quintic formula the same way we have something like a quadratic formula or cubic formula or quartic formula. And I get really excited about that stuff because, I mean, I guess you care about roots of polynomials if you're a physicist looking for critical numbers and stuff. You're like, oh, where is this thing zero? Because that's going to be a local max or a local min or something like that. But for me, it's just the kind of symmetries of the roots that's exciting. Hmm. You, you have this more abstract look, whereas I'm like, these, these numbers are going to be important for the next step. Right. I'm like, there's no next step. There's just the beauty. <laughs> so if you think of the equation x squared plus 1, that has two roots and they're complex. It's i and negative i. And there's a way in which if you 
think about it. They're, they're off by a negative sign. You should be able to switch them around without changing too much. And that's kind of what Galois theory is about. It's like, I could switch those around, but if I had some other root in the mix, it might be like legitimately different enough that I wouldn't want to switch it with I or negative I. It would just mess up the beautiful symmetries that we have going on. Okay. But anyway, this is all a long introduction to talking about rings, which is what I really want to tell you about. I feel like I need to get back at you now for saying that you hear nano diamonds and you picture princess cut tiny little diamonds. I hear ring and I picture also (laughs) princess cut tiny little diamonds. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, they're, they're beautiful. I would love to be proposed to with a ring, a mathematical ring. Be nice. It's an abstract object. It's an abstract object. It's a set with some stuff um, and some operations, addition and multiplication, and the operations satisfy a bunch of properties. And I'll give you an example with numbers first. The integers form a ring. The integers are the positive whole numbers, the negative whole numbers, and zero. I've got addition, I can add integers and I get another integer. I can multiply two integers, I get another integer. Those are closure properties. It says when you do these operations, you stay in the set you started with. You don't like escape somehow, you're closed. The set is closed under those operations. I've got associativity. If I add three things, I'm not confused about where I should put parentheses. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's gonna work out the same way. Same with multiplication, it's associative. I've got Addition is commutative. If I add two and three and you add three and two, we both get five. It doesn't matter which order we did that in. There's a distributive property that links addition and multiplication together. You can kind of like distribute multiplication over addition. Things are fine. And there are identities. There's an additive identity, a zero. If I add it to one, it stays one. If I add it to negative one, negative one stays negative one. Everybody's got a negative buddy where you you take like two and negative two, you add them up, you get zero. Additive inverses. Multiplicative identity one, but not everybody has a multiplicative inverse. So the integers are a ring. The integers are a ring. In fact, there's something called an integral domain, which is, in my mind, a translation of a, a place where stuff works out like in the integers. They're kind of the canonical example of an integral domain. But it turns out polynomial rings, where you have coefficients from some nice field like the real numbers in. A uh, single variable, those are also integral domains. So what's not a ring? Oh, uh, positive integers. Positive integers alone, not a ring. Um, you need the negatives. You need the negatives. And in fact, the positive integers don't have zero either, so they don't have an identity. Oh, yeah. So There's nothing you could add that right. leaves it unmoved. Exactly, exactly. So you could throw zero in, and then you've got something that's getting a little bit closer. Um, if you throw in the negatives, you're like, cool, that's... Now I've got myself a nice ring. All the way. And if you throw in multiplicative inverses, where you're now looking at fractions and you get all the way up to the rational numbers, now you have a field where every possible property you want is there. So a field is stricter than a ring. A field is stricter than a ring. And that's the, that's the way I think about these objects. A field is really beautiful, very nice, um, you know, unicorns and daisies and sunbeams and rainbows. And then you just take away the property that everything needs an inverse, a multiplicative inverse, and suddenly things get very weird. Um, And that allows for things like you multiply two non-zero things together and you get zero, which is very mysterious. The integers don't have that property, but some some things do. Uh, And they're still rings. We wouldn't call them an integral domain anymore because they don't behave like the integers anymore with these zero divisors, these like positive or non-zero things. It's amazing what you can do when you abstract away from numbers. 
It is, but even, even still, like if you think about a clock, an example of something with zero divisors is clock arithmetic. If you think about a clock, and I have one that's stopped on my wall, which is very convenient. It's not gonna screw us up by moving the hands or anything. <laughs> You've got 12 hours on the clock, and after you go around, you start repeating yourself. And so if I start at noon, and I add three hours, I get to three, and if I add three more hours, I get to six, and if I add three more hours, I get to nine, and I add three more hours, and I get back to 12. And so I've added 12, but gotten nowhere. I mean, time moved, but the clock looks exactly the same, and not just because the hands are not moving on this particular clock. And what that means is that in this case, I can think of 12 as being an additive identity. I add 12 and I get back to where I started. But that also means that if I take three and I multiply it by four, I get zero in this situation. 12 is the zero. 12 is the zero. So now I've taken two non-zero things, three and four, multiply them together, I get 12, which is zero, and that's weird. I know modular arithmetic has a lot of applications in computer science. It even came up when I was teaching quantum computing. We were essentially doing computer science, but with quantum mechanics. Right, right. Yeah, there are applications, but then there are also abstractions, which are way <laughs> yeah, more this, fun. This is our fight, right? This I'm, is our fight. I have to be the scientist who wants so much to make it apply and right. has a purpose right and you need to see the elegant beauty of something totally abstract i mean like why just do this with numbers why not do it with other stuff you know if i can sort of take remainder classes when i divide by 12 which is what we're doing if i take 15 unless we're on military time i divide it by 12 i see that it has remainder three and i'm like three o'clock right we're making these remainder classes and we're defining operations on them we're like you can add them you can multiply them you can multiply them by an integer which makes them an a module over an integer. They're like a little vector space, but now I can take scalars from the integers. And that's fun. And so why not do it with more stuff? And that's where my research gets started, actually. Not just numbers. Not just numbers. No. Better than numbers. You work with polynomials. I do. I love polynomials. Now, you can think about polynomials, if that word is not something you're familiar with, as stuff you would have seen probably in high school or in a calculus class. You've got a variable like x or multiple variables like x and y and you're scaling them they have coefficients that probably come from the real numbers often you know like 2x squared minus the square root of 5y is a polynomial uh, you don't divide them usually you don't do you don't mix in trig functions or things like that it's just powers of variables that you've scaled and added together yeah if there's a trig function i wouldn't call it a polynomial anymore no i wouldn't either and i'm the expert so we have to, <laughs> yes, we have to agree with me yes you are um i mean well okay we won't get that far off track i was gonna say there's a, a way in which you could but we won't worry about that that's actually very physics-y so we'll stick to the the what i think of as like the nice normal polynomials powers of x maybe y i like to have you know somewhere between two and ten variables usually the problems i'm interested in you can take those polynomials and i mean Lots of people graph them, and you can see features of the polynomial. But once you write something like x squared minus y equals zero, which is another way of saying y equals x squared, in my mind, you've started doing geometry instead of algebra. Is it the equal sign? It's the equal sign. It's like now we've got this assignment, and we're going to look for the points in the plane that yeah, satisfy You, you can thing. solve for x and y at that point. They, they're the variables that you want to now. They're the unknowns you need to solve for. Yeah, and I'm like... Just let them be unknown, man. 
just, <laughs> just let them let them represent this abstract expression x squared minus y. And if you really want to solve for them, you think about taking the set of all polynomials in x and y, dividing them by x squared minus y, which you have to make sense of, like how do you do this polynomial division in multiple variables? But it's okay, it can be done. And then you think, all right, in that sense, when I've divided by x squared minus y, I'm saying set those equal, and everywhere you see an x squared, replace it with a y. And now look at the polynomials you have left. And that you're really just doing clock arithmetic, but now on the set of polynomials. Oh, because clock arithmetic is about dividing out, like 15 and 3 are yeah. the same time on the clock. Because, because you the same remainder mod 12. Yes. And so I would look at these the set of polynomials, like if I take the polynomial x cubed minus 2y plus 3, I'm going to replace an x squared with a y, because I'm thinking like, oh, x squared, x squared minus y, they're really, when I divide out by them, it's like setting them equal. And so I take this x cubed, I make it an xy, and now I've got the polynomial xy minus 3y plus 3 or whatever it was. That's interesting. You're creating these... Actually, I think the word is congruent. Yeah, congruent classes. You're creating these congruent classes. You're saying, I'll have this polynomial, I'll have this polynomial, and under this clock arithmetic, they're congruent. They're the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And let me give you an application, because I know that you like oh, I applications. Love applications. It's sort of a silly application, um, but it's, it's something you could actually sit down on a computer and do. So you, let's say that you've got a 4x4 four four Sudoku. Um, I'm not going to do nine by nine because I, that's just too big. Okay. Four by four. So 16 boxes, 16 boxes, four rows, four columns, and then four of those little two by two cages, like each, okay. each two by two corner. I've got my post-it note and I've drawn my cages. Excellent. And you know, the rules of Sudoku, we're going to use the numbers one through four and we need every row, column, and two by two cage to contain the numbers one through four exactly once. We're gonna use them all exactly once. Yeah, I feel like this is the size of Sudoku I can handle. Right, and you know, you could just probably look at one all at once and just get the solution, like it's pretty small. Um, and the, if, once you have enough clues in there, it's, it becomes pretty quick to solve. Yeah, I have a feeling you're not solving this by hand. I'm not solving this by hand because what I want to do is I want to use algebra to solve it, to give you an example of why you might want to mod out by something. So what I would do, the way that I would think of this as an algebra problem, is I would take the blank board and I would say, okay, 16 cells, I'm going to give them each a variable. I'm going to call like the top left X and then I, I would, you could use X1 through X16. You could use 16 different letters of the alphabet, but I would actually like to know where they live in the grid. So I'll call it like X11. Yeah. Coordinates make sense. I mean, ever since I learned to play Battleship, yeah, I've that's appreciated right. coordinates. That's a, that's a good lesson from Battleship. That's maybe one of the only good reasons to play that game. <laughs> I think I'm, I find that game inferior. Well, my sister used to cheat. She would like move the ship around, which oh. I know, the little jerk. No wonder you don't like that game. I know. Her name is Brittany Gibbons, if anyone is listening and wants to know that she's a dishonorable person. Anyway, so you've got these things and you've got rules that govern the board. Your board says that, all right, in that top row, X11, X12, X13, X14, I need the numbers one through four which means that I need to make sure that each cell is only allowed to be one or four. And that means that if I take X one, one two, three or four, right? One, one, two, three or four. If I take X one, one, 
and I want to say that's supposed to be one, two, three, or four, I build a polynomial that represents that. I say x11 minus 1 times x11 minus 2 times x11 minus 3 times x11 minus 4. And that would be a beast to foil out, so let's not bother. But what that says is that if I want that thing to equal 0, and this is the connection to geometry, there are exactly four solutions, 1, 2, 3, or 4. So that limits the possibilities for what the first cell can be. Okay, so I used a lot of parentheses when I wrote out what you said. Um, you're implicitly said, saying if it's equal to zero, then it has to be one, two, three, or four. There are four possible answers. That's I right. I see that. And that's sometimes called the zero product property or something like that. Like if you want this polynomial to equal zero, one of its factors has to equal zero. So I'm just building the polynomial to say, all right, I know what I want. The, I want the zeros to either be one, two, three, or four. So let me build those in as the factors. You could do that for any of the cells. You do it for all of the cells and you mod out by that to say, okay, like that's the governing rule of this game is that each cell can be one, two, three, or four. So you get 16 rules that way, but that's not enough because I could fill in the board with all ones at this point and it, everything would be zero and that would be fine according to what I've done so far. So I'm going to make some more rules. I know that the top row on x11, x12, x13, x14, that should have the entries 1, 2, 3, and 4. I don't exactly know the order, but I know that all of those entries should add up to 10 and multiply to 24 if I'm using the numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4. Sure. And so I get a polynomial. One of my polynomials is x11 plus x12 plus x13 plus x14 minus 10. If I want that to be zero, I, that's telling me, okay, these things have to add up to 10. And then I make the multiplication rule. That's x11 times x12 times x13 times x14 minus 24. And if I want that to be zero, I've got to know that these things multiply to 24. So that's enough to get your top row uh -huh. having every number exactly once. Yep. And the allowed numbers are 1, 2, 3, and 4. Exactly. You've taken this game that everyone loves to play. And I've turned it into a math problem. With polynomials. With polynomials. You've turned it into something that requires this, this level of mathematics. And I've done it in order to require this level of mathematics. Because it's nice to start with something people know how to do and tell them how to build it into something that uses the stuff I like. Totally. And so I get a boatload of equations, right? I get... Um, yeah, you got to write the same equation for it. Yeah, page. so that's like another 24 equations, I think. And then an equation for every column. And an equation for every row. So that's six... Well, sorry. Let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 relations. Yeah, times two. four cages, four rows, and four columns. Yeah, so that's 12. 12. Or 0 mod 12, as we talked about earlier. But let's keep it 12. Let's Plus see. the 16 rules to make yep. sure that you only are using the numbers 1, 2, 3, or 4 and not something yeah. wonky. Right. And that, like, I had a solution that involved imaginary numbers. And it's like, well, that's not... I mean, Will Schwartz would not accept that in the New York Times as a solution to one of these Sudokus, even though it's fun. <laughs> it, Sometimes it, it added to 10, it multiplied to 24. Yeah, but, but it, it had imaginary complex. numbers. Yeah, I think that's kind of fun. It's fun. To, anyway, so you've got, like, the... 12 addition rules, 12 multiplication rules, and then 16 rules, one for each cell. So that's 24 plus 16, which is a bunch. And that's just the game board, right? Like, that's the blank game board. Those are just the rules before you put in clues. Right. And now let's say the top left entry was a 3. You would then mod out by the polynomial x11 minus 3 because you know that's a 3. It can't change. You're not allowed to change 
the grid, the rule, the mm-hmm. clues in the grid. Because x11 minus 3, if you were to set it equal to 0, uh-huh. would require then that you could solve for x11 and it's 3. Exactly. We're using that polynomial rings, or polynomials have like unique factorization and unique solutions. There's no way around that being 3. And so you can, what you can do is you use algebra to model the game board and model the rules of the board, the rules of the clues, and then you're, you're thinking about sort of modding out by all of that stuff, which means you're putting it together in a set along with anything you can build out of that stuff in that set. And then you're asking like, all right, what are the, what are the remainders? Mod that thing. Like what's allowed to still happen? And you solve your board. It's not fast. It's not the way you should write a program to solve Sudoku, but it's an example of why you might want to mod out by polynomials to do some sort of thing. And it can detect if there's a unique solution, if the board is inconsistent and you can't solve it, or if it has multiple solutions. And I want to say there's like 288 solutions to a 4x4 board, and I did write code in this program called Macaulay 2, which is a great research tool in my field, which is commutative algebra, where you can solve problems about ideals which is what these sets are, and varieties where these polynomials are simultaneously zero. Is that why you know it's not fast? That's, I do know it's not fast. Uh, I tried it on, my, on a nine by nine board and it doesn't run. Oh no. I think there are probably, I'm not a computer scientist, but I do a fair amount of coding. I think there are probably ways that you could parallelize parts of it, but I don't. No. So it runs on multiple processors? Yeah, yeah. And then you could probably solve it pretty quickly. But there are much faster mathematical ways of solving this using other fields of math, like graph theory or uh, stuff. But this is a nice little example to set up, like, here's a system with some rules, and we can describe the rules with polynomials, and we can figure stuff out. And that's where a lot of the applications in my research area are, not to Sudokus, but to statistical models that kind of come to you governed by polynomials. You're a physicist, so you probably are familiar with maximum likelihood estimation for doing physics-y things. Like, you've got the model that you want to use, you've got the data that you want to use, and then you've got to figure out, okay, based on the data and the model, what should the parameters in the model be? Like, what should the coefficients actually be in the model? How do I fit this model to this data? That would be the maximum likelihood. That would be the maximum likelihood. And you use calculus to do it, right? Because you're like, I want to maximize the likelihood that these are the right coefficients. And so if that system is governed by polynomials, you're setting a bunch of polynomials to zero to find critical numbers and say, aha, calculus tells me that's the max because that's what calculus does. But the derivatives of polynomials are also polynomials. So you can actually do this kind of stuff with a lot of algebra. And so that's a pretty brand new field that just got its own math subject classification number in 2020 called algebraic statistics, where you use algebra to solve these types of problems that come from statistics that are governed by polynomial equations and often, well, maybe not often, but sometimes it's faster than using more traditional methods that are like numerical approximation methods because those can take a long time. But we've got a lot, I mean, people have been doing algebra for like millennia. So we've got a lot of tricks up our sleeves for dealing with polynomials. And I think the world is catching up realizing, oh, hey, you should collaborate with algebraists. (laughs) You might hate polynomials, but I know somebody who loves them, who wants to play with them. Interesting. Um, I'm still stuck on the idea. Y'all math have classification numbers for your subfields? Yeah, there's, um, like, I work in 13, which is uh, rings and algebras. You just assign a number to it. Yeah, it's like a linear order. Sorry, that's the cat food feeder going off. If anyone listening knows me, they know that I've got lots of cats. 
and we have feeder systems set up so they have like different places to eat where they're not competing for resources. Also, you could model with polynomials, but a little bit harder. Yeah, the classification numbers, there's, it's like from one to 20 something and algebraic statistics I think is in 20, which is, I forget what, but like I work in 13 and sometimes 14 and yeah, it's, it's, in, and then there are subfields, like there's like 13 C4 and 13 and like 14 DA and you attach these to your papers, which is kind of funny. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Very organized. Physics is not that numeric. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, we like, as mathematicians, we like order and classification and totally. uh, demarcation, you know, and boundary cases. It's like, what's the boundary case but at being, like, in 13 versus 14? Sure. Well, you'd want to have somebody doing interdisciplinary work, I That's assume. Right. That's right. otherwise, you're not feeding off each other. That's right. Yeah. The, I mean, but like on physics, on the archive, you can sort by subfields. Is that just not like a global? Oh, definitely. Thing? Definitely. But we use English. Oh, I see. Not numbers. And there's nobody deciding what the rules are. You can, you can claim that you're working in some particular subfield. I mean, I guess you want to have a conference. Right. Right. But. Interesting. No, anyone can like... throw a conference. There's, I think it's like the American Mathematical Society and then like the Central Block in Germany, maybe. They like collaborate every 10 years to update the list of math subject classifications. Oh, I mean, every year the American Physical Society redoes their list. Yeah. But it's about organizing their conference sessions and it can update any time. It's not an every 10 year thing. That's like whenever I apply to some sort of mathematical program, they ask like which classification numbers you're interested in or you work in. Oh, the other thing is that more than half of physicists are in condensed matter. Oh, they're condensed into. (laughs) It just means anything with anyone who's studying materials, matter materials, that's not a gas or maybe it is a gas. So are you a condensed matter physicist? I am a condensed matter physicist. Because those little nanodiamonds are not gas. Right. They're a matter. They're nanodiamonds matter. (laughs) They have mass. They have mass. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So they're matter. Yeah. And they're condensed because they're not gas. Yeah. Most mathematicians don't study things with mass. (laughs) Or like a state of being. I mean, I guess I would say a polynomial is a state of being, but. I'm feeling very polynomialish today. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel like a polynomial combination of the following states, you know, happy, tired, glad that it's break. Like, happy, squared, tired to the 10th. Yeah. Excited to grade has a negative coefficient. Oh, I feel like, though, you should have coefficients on those things. Like, yeah. how much of each you have. Yeah, yeah. But probably the powers are the relevant thing, and then positive or negative. You, you know, what, what it is for me, when I think of a polynomial, and I think, okay, we're going to have, I don't know, x11 and x12 and x13, just going back to the Sudoku board. Yeah. I think about how it can store information. Yeah. And, well, like, one common way to store information is what numeric value does the coefficient have, the thing that's multiplying right. by the x. Not, not for the Sudoku board necessarily, but just in general, if I, if I have 1x squared plus 2y squared plus 3z squared, now I've got a 1, a 2, and a 3. So and you're thinking of it like a vector, kind of. Yeah, just a way of storing information. Yeah, and the polynomial pieces are just telling you which coordinate of your vector you're in. 
I suppose so, yeah. That's not a bad way to think about it. Um, in fact, you can take rings, like the ring that we're playing with for the Sudoku board, or just a polynomial ring in general, and you can kind of slice it up into a bunch of vector spaces. You could start with the constants, and that's a vector space over the field of coefficients, and it has a basis that's just one. It's like you take your const, you take one and you multiply it by your constant term, and now you've spanned the constant term. So you've got a one-dimensional vector space where you're allowed to pull your constants from. And then you think about your degree one terms, like x or 3y or pi z, and you have a basis for that vector space, it's x, y, z, and you can span any degree one polynomial by pulling real number coefficients. Like if I want to span... You could put any coefficient in there. Yeah. Any... So spanning means you're kind of, you have choices. That's right. That's right. It's like I, I, my fundamental building blocks are x, y's, and z's. I don't want to multiply them by each other, but I can multiply them by real numbers and then add them together. And that would, that would give me a polynomial of degree one. And I could do polynomials of degree two in the variables x, y, and z. I'd have six different building block pieces. I'd have x squared, xy, xz, y squared, yz, and z squared. And then I could combine those with real number coefficients and add them together and I'd get degree two polynomials. And so as I build up my polynomial, I might start at the constant term and say, okay, I pull from this one dimensional vector space for the constant. I pull from this uh, three dimensional vector space for the linear term. I pull from the six dimensional vector space for the degree two term. The quadratic term. Six dimensional because you have six coefficients. Because I, be, because I have six monomials, like the x squared. Yeah, I could I could put together six of those pieces with coefficients. Mm -hmm. And then I get up to degree three and I've got even more and, and so on. And you could think about it as like your polynomial is a finite vector in an infinite dimensional vector space that's built out of finite dimensional pieces that kind of chop up your degrees, which is a lot. It's finite dimensional because you're deciding to limit yourself to so many terms of your polynomial. The polynomial itself is, like a polynomial is defined to be a finite combination of monomial terms. Ah, so it can't be an infinite series. It can't be an infinite series. You could study infinite series. You could study power series rings instead of polynomial rings or, um, or series rings, you know, instead of polynomial rings. And those are interesting too, but I'm, I'm like a polynomial gal. <laughs> I like I like things that are a blend of infinite and finite. In physics, we play this game where we treat infinite series and polynomials as not being so different because we assume that the infinite series, like the later terms, are not important. Yeah, and so we say, oh, they're probably approximately zero. Yeah, so we just yeah. truncate it. We just game. stop at a certain point. Yeah, and say it's good enough. Yeah, I've I've watched I've watched physicists play that game and. I guess if you're describing stuff in the world, that makes sense, but... Well, how precise do you need to be? Yeah, I I guess physicists don't need to be. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I think it's interesting, like, a polynomial, like, if I took the, the sequence of polynomials, 1, 1 plus x, 1 plus x plus x squared, 1 plus x plus x squared plus x cubed, the limit of that is... A series. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. And so there's a sense in which you could complete a polynomial ring by expanding to allow the limit points to be part of the ring. And that's where you get a, a ring of series. Oh. Which is kind of, but that's getting a little bit analytic, where you start thinking about sequences and limit points and things like that. Yeah, I, I think in the math classes I took, there was a lot of interest in saying, okay, if you can write something as an infinite series, can you also write it? 
some other way. Right. Right. Could you write it as a rational function? Like, if could you, could you take that series 1 plus x plus x squared plus x cubed plus x to the fourth plus other, all the powers of x? And um, can you take that and re- recognize that as a geometric series, 1 over 1 minus x being what that series would be in calculus, but just forget the radius of convergence stuff. Unless, yeah. unless it tells you something you're interested in and then put it, put it back in. But. So in physics, what we would do is if we have a 1 over 1 minus x, yeah. we could write it as the infinite series and then just stop just after stop. Oh. two terms or so. I see. And you well, that's so uncomfortable. I, I'm a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but, you know, that's, you guys get to make your own rules and live in your little... <laughs> well, I'm thinking of the three little pigs, right? Like, you're building a house out of sticks. And I'm, like, very happy in my brick house right well, now. you know, I think math is... We're all trying to seek out truth. It's true. And... The truth is that in physics, everything's based on measurements that are imperfect. And so if you, if you try for perfection, you're kind of fooling yourself. Right. Because That's you reasonable. don't know anything that well. Don't, don't pretend to know it perfectly. Yeah. You, you, you took a measurement at some point. You got some data. Your data's not perfect. Yeah. Whereas in math, you actually can aim for perfection. Right. Because math is one big if then statement it really is it is where it's built on instead of built on measurements and data from the world it's built on the shared agreement that we're going to take these certain axioms and even that agreement is not always so shared like what axioms you take to be fundamental and then we're going to just logic our way up to theorems you had an article recently about definitions i did i had this existential crisis basically (laughs) i i had an idea for what i wanted to write this blog piece about and I needed a definition of prime to start it off and I grabbed the nearest book and I looked up the definition and thought I don't think that's the definition I saw in my algebra class and so I grabbed the book I used for my algebra class when I was an undergrad and it had indeed did have a, def- a different definition of prime and then I grabbed my tiebreaker book which is like the one I took graduate algebra from and it was like oh you could take either one of these to be the definition like we'll do this one but like an exercise is you know, show they're the also, same thing. They're the same thing. And I got really kind of flummoxed because, you know, there's this view of math that it's this perfect thing external to us and we just like witness it and and write down the logic. Like if aliens build a spaceship and came to Earth, they right. would have the like, same math. They would have the same math. And then I was like, you know, primes are this very fundamentally mathematical thing. You don't really see primes occurring in like natural systems or I mean Carl Sagan said that they're not happening in the universe that's why Jodie Foster in the movie Contact could hear these prime buzzes and And it's a sign of a sign of intelligent intelligent life life because they figured out primes right but then we don't even agree as mathematicians what the definition is and what we have these things that are equivalent but to some mathematicians one of them is a definition and another is just like a happy consequence and then for another camp of mathematicians, it's the opposite. And then there's the ones in the middle that's like, yeah, I don't know, primes aren't that interesting to me. So you guys fight that battle. I'll just take them both to be equivalent and then I'll do other more interesting math. Yeah, the thing is the result is the same. It is, but it got me on but this. it bothered you. It, like, it was this sort of philosophical, not mathematical. Like I, mathematically, I'm like, whatever, they're equivalent. It doesn't matter to me. But philosophically, this idea that 
there's a truth out there and we're just writing it down. It shook that notion really fundamentally that we don't agree on the definition. Ah, uh, so it's more like math is constructed by yeah, people which making I, choices. Which I generally believe I'm more of a constructivist than a whatever the option, other option. It's not about discovering. It's not like there's a platonic realm out there where we're just like witnessing the shadows on the cave or whatever. I actually think we decide what a prime is. And mm. the thing that most mathematicians agree on is that one is not a prime. Which there and there are reasons for that, but then you ask, you know, an elementary school teacher, and they're like, "Why? Why? Why is it one a prime? Because it feels the same. It's something that can't be broken down into like legitimately different factors." And we know the mathematical end game of why we don't want one to be prime, because probably someone was like, "Sure, let one be prime," and then they started proving theorems, and they were like, "Gosh, that's awfully inconvenient." Now you I always had to make an exception. Yeah, for I have one. to do a special case for one. So let's just not let that be prime. And then it generalizes and that decision sort of percolates outward into these things that are definitely constructed and not discovered. And so the primes start out with two, three, yeah. definitely not four. No, five. five. Uh-huh. Seven. Seven. Eleven. Thirteen. They and start spreading out more. They start spreading out more. Roughly like a log n over n, I think, is the rule. Or n over log n. I always forget which way it goes. I love that logarithms come into this. They do. They do. Um, uh, logarithms often come into sort of asymptotic growth because, mm. it's like, if things are pretty slow, you've got a logarithm floating around somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, no. The prime. What is what is the primeness really? Isn't it just threw me for a loop? And also, negative two and negative three and negative five are primes in my world. You're allowed oh. to have negative number primes. Okay. But again, that's not consensus. That's sort of like, because I think of things as like, if you can multiply by something that has a multiplicative inverse and you like get rid of the negative sign, like in the integers, negative one is one of the few things with a multiplicative inverse because negative one times negative one is one. And so if I can take two and multiply it by negative one and get negative two and then multiply it by negative one and and get back to two I'm like they're basically the same thing that that unit that negative one thing with an inverse didn't really change much because I could cancel it off if I wanted to okay so for some mathematicians like you it's convenient to consider the negative primes to be prime yeah and there must be mathematicians out there who would fight you over this they they would they would I don't really run in those circles where I would have to (laughs) you know get into a street duel over the primeness of negative two. But but it comes back to the notion of trying to make vector spaces over rings. So like I could look at all the things that are multiples of two, two, four, six, eight, negative two, negative four, negative six, negative eight. And I say like, what could I use as the fundamental thing that tells me like what I'm gonna look at? And you could say two, like take all multiples of two but that's the same as saying take all multiples of negative two. And so for me, I'm like, ah, both of, them, both of them are fine. They're both prime in the sense that they describe the entire set I am interested in. Okay. So we're back to polynomials. Back to polynomials, yeah. I feel like you really like polynomials. I love them. I think I like them more than cats, even. More than cats? Um, yeah, I would rather spend time... Courtney, you have four cats. I do. That's another thing that shook my sense of numeracy, actually. Going from, you know, I, my previous local max was three cats. And I felt like I, I was pretty 
I understood what two and three were and the distance between two and three as ordinals. Um, but then getting up to four cats, I realized four is much bigger than I previously understood. Is from three to four was a bigger jump than it was from two a bigger to three? Jump, yeah. Um, the consequences of having four cats, how often you have to go to the vet, how often you step in cat barf, the number of litter boxes you've got spread out while they work out the hierarchy. Yeah, I would expect this to be linear, Courtney. I would have expected it not to be linear, but to sort of the marginal cost. Oh, maybe of each... logarithmic? Yeah, I would have expected the marginal cost of an additional cat to be decreasing over time. It's not like kids. It's not like you can get one to babysit for the other. Right, right. It's not like that. Although I don't have kids either. I'm sure that I will have some. Maybe it's just the beginning is kind of noisy. You've got like maybe your three cats worked out personality wise and food special needs diet wise. And then you add a fourth cat and it's disruptive. But eventually after, you know, 10 cats, you've got all the problems you could possibly have among cats. <laughs> and so it really is a decreasing marginal. Uh, so you just need more cats. I think that's what I'm saying to myself. Um, so yeah, we'll work on that. See how full the shelters are. Uh, that's a, that's a very concrete example of numbers. It is. It is. I think I had the realization too, when I went from running 5Ks to running my one and only 15K. And I realized that 15 is way more than three times five in that context. Yeah, because you're tired after the first 5K. I'm tired after the first 1K. Another 5K. Yeah, and then another one. In a row. Yeah, I didn't like that so much. (laughs) So I haven't run anymore at all. Like, I ran a half K, like a, a one half of one kilometer at the Kirkland Town Library. And that's the race I'm most comfortable with. I did beat Kat Beck, our star runner uh, and geo- geoscientist in the Kirkland 5K, Kirkland 0.5K. 0.5K. 0.5K, but she was running with her toddler. <laughs> but I'm going to take it because you don't get that kind of win very often. So, Oh, man. I, yeah. I've never run more than a 5K myself, Reese. I... I tell myself, like, maybe I'll do the Boilermaker one more time. And I know that's a lie. And I'm okay lying to myself that way. But I did it once. I bought myself a green Boilermaker hat because now I can wear it and it's not a lie. <laughs> and that's, that's really all I wanted. I, want, I like to be able to say I have done something, but I often don't enjoy the doing of the thing. Hmm. Like, math is one of those rare things where I enjoy the doing of the thing enough that I'll just sit down and do it. Nice. And, and then I also like having done a thing, like proving a theorem or something. But that's really only because then I get to talk to more people about math. What are some theorems you've proven? Ooh. Something I've got you're some proud nice, of. I've got some nice ones. I proved um, some stuff as an undergraduate, actually, in graph theory. That's That was fun. The most, The stuff I'm most proud of is probably still related to my dissertation work. There was one part of my dissertation that was an extension of a theory to a more general situation, which is, of course, the mathematician's bread and butter. Um, But there was also a part of my dissertation that was a counterexample that said this theory that I'd extended in this one situation couldn't be extended further to this other situation. And it's nice to know, like, when you should have hope and when you shouldn't. So the first part was like, there's hope. You could extend this nice theory to a more general situation. 
And then the next part was, but not too much hope because you can't do it in general. And like maybe not even in the next reasonable thing you would try. You were trying, weren't you? I you was. Were trying to extend it. I was. My advisor said, this definitely has to be true here because this is just too nice for it not to be true. And then I tried very hard because he's a very smart man. Um, and he said it shouldn't be able to happen. And I believe Intuitively. Him. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue with him sometimes and he'd say, well, I'm the maestro and you're the student. Oh my gosh. Seriously. And, and I was like, well, okay. The maestro says it's going to happen. I better play the music. And it was impossible. And it was impossible. Oh no. It was very satisfying. I, you know, doing, proving something is impossible. There's a little bit of spite in being right in those arguments with your advisor who is the maestro, right? And knowing like, actually maestro got to play to my tune. He didn't believe me for so long that I had to like reprove the same basic identity to him like four months straight before I made him sign a piece of paper that said that he had witnessed me prove it and we could move on. He was, he was getting annoyed. He's like, why aren't like, why are you still stuck on this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're the one who's stuck on this. You just like, you have this strong intuition and you don't believe this can be true. But every meeting I come in here and you're like, no, no, that shouldn't happen. And I show you and you're like, oh, huh. And so he signed the paper and then we could move on finally. Wow. But I think he did start to think I was kind of dumb because for four months we just talked about the same thing. And he thought I should be making. you'd already proven. Right. He thought I should be making progress. And I was. I just never got to tell him about it because he was so stuck on the first step. So what was that aha moment where you realized that what you'd been trying to prove was impossible? It was actually, I'm a little embarrassed. Um, I'm not a very geometric thinker, which is why I'm an algebraist and why I don't like to plot things in the plane. I mean, I do in calculus and stuff. You kind of have to. But I realized that the family of things I was interested in, these modules over polynomial rings, a particular type of polynomial ring, could be parametrized with ordered pairs of numbers, of integer numbers, right? Like I could say like one, three, two, five, right? And that was some kind of secret code that was some for your kind polynomial? Of, that was some kind of secret code for the important pieces of the polynomial. And I was like, what if I plotted these ordered pairs in the XY plane? And that took, that was like a year long process of me realizing I could plot these things. <laughs> Whereas me as a physicist, as soon as like, I get a set of ordered pairs, I'm like, yeah. oh, I should see what this looks like. Right. No, I was like, we've got these theorems that say they're, they behave in this way and they are part of this vector space. That's like, they're telling me what these rational functions are going to be. And then I can expand them to an infinite series. Mm. And, and it took going the other way and saying like, actually... You know, when I plot these things, the slope of the line that that they're approaching—they were all on a line. They were pretty much they weren't they weren't on a line, but they were clearly approaching a line. Oh, okay, okay. Like, Asymptotic. as, asymptotically, they looked like they should be plotting a line, and you could divide them. Like there was the case of like here are the ordered pairs that are possible, and here are the ordered pairs that aren't possible, and they were very clearly divided in the plane by this line. Which, oh, something in between. Yeah, them. something okay. in between them, and it was like well this line obviously has to have some algebraic meaning and it did it should have been the slope of the line would have been an idealized dimension of something it'd sort of be like if you just sort of clear the denominator of the slope you know like if it was like three halves you just multiply by two and you're like cool this is telling me something about the number six in the numerator oh okay well what was happening was this line i figured out 
an equation for the line based on the algebra in the background, and it had an irrational slope. And the thing about dimensions is they're counting the number of elements in a basis, and that should be an integer. Yeah. And the thing about irrational numbers is when you multiply them by integers, they're still not integers. Like, there's no integer you could take square root of 5 and multiply it by to get an integer. Yeah, I'm trying to think, to have a non-integer dimension makes me think of fractals, but even fractals are named after fractions. Yeah, they're, they're still quotients of integers. They're still rational. They're still rational. And in algebra, really, the way of chopping up polynomials, it's like, you know, dimension 1 for the constants, dimension 3 for the degree 1 stuff, dimension 6 for the degree 2 stuff, like, that's what we're talking about. We're counting up integer numbers of bases that we're then sort of stacking together. And it was just not supposed to be no, the case. No, you got me. I can't make heads or tails of an irrational number of dimensions. Right. And for that theory that I was working on extending to work, that line needed to really be a dimension or at least an idealized dimension. Like maybe nothing actually had that dimension, but you could approach it and it would be, there would be this platonic object out there that would have this dimension. And we'd say, we just define it and say, this is that nice thing. So that was a sign it really was impossible. That was a sign it really was impossible. You had hit a contradiction. Yeah. And then I started realizing like, wow, I could draw some more lines based on these ordered pairs. And I was able to classify some stuff. This is the really good stuff. This stuff is like less good, but still possible. This stuff out here is impossible unless it's one of these wacky things. And it got me a lot of mileage. And it helped me realize that I could learn a lot from these things by really paring down the information into this sort of like one step quick analysis that would take me on this journey to new new discoveries. And so a lot of my dissertation was based on not just knowing that this extension of what's called Boyce-Soderberg theory was impossible to these things called modules over short Gorenstein rings, which I like also being short and symmetric. That's what <laughs> short means, short and Gorenstein is a key for symmetry. But the way in which I figured out it was impossible led me to some other ways of analyzing them that were computationally kind of important because they, each one of these objects, these modules, have some kind of recursion that kicks in. A good example of recursion is the Fibonacci sequence. If you take something like one and one, you've got two entries, and then you add them together, and you get two, and then you're like two and the previous guy, two and one, add those together, you get three. Take the two most recent ones, two and three, add those together, you get five. So you keep taking two and adding them together to oh, get the yeah. next thing. When I was a kid, I loved the Fibonacci sequence, and I used to write it down when I was bored in class. It's and really just keep fun. going. And then I tried to use it for a locker combo, and it's not a good secret code. It's not. And you can't really, like, go very far in the sequence before no. the numbers are very huge, because it grows roughly exponentially, so. Yeah, yeah, 1123 is actually not a great secret code. And neither is 1235. No, or 2358. <laughs> no, it's terrible. Yeah. No, but so all of these modules eventually had a recursion that kicked in. And if you knew where it was, you could just like calculate up to that point, And then the recursion told you the rest of the information. But, sure. I mean, if I know we're doing the Fibonacci sequence, all I have to do is give me two numbers. And right. I'm golden. I can keep on adding. Forever. Yeah. So these modules... The question was, how do you know when you've gotten to the part where the recursion starts happening? Because each module had a different place where it might start happening. And it could be like the 180th term is where the recursion starts kicking in. And you don't really know until you get like far enough out that you're like, okay, I kind of see the recursion happening now. This is probably where it is. But even then you're not totally sure because there could still be some noise messing it up early on. And by early on, I mean anywhere that's a finite position. 
before the asymptotic eventual behavior starts kicking in. So you have some kind of sequence of numbers and they're generated in a way where you don't know if it's recursive? You know it's eventually recursive, that like the noise dies away, but you don't know where. Okay. And part of this work that I was doing showing that something was impossible also allowed me to say like, oh, if I look at the first column of this matrix, I can tell you where the recursion is guaranteed to kick in. So I can tell you how far out you need to calculate to capture the interesting noise at the beginning. And then you're guaranteed that it's smooth sailing after that. So that was the theorem you proved? That was the theorem that I proved. Okay. I called it the Betty viewing window because these, these matrices were called Betty numbers for the topologist Betty. And they're just dimensions. We like dimensions in B-E-T-T-Y? B-E-T-T-I. I. I, yeah. I know really nothing about the life of Betty, but maybe after this I'll go look up Betty and what Betty was up to. I saw you also brought a book along. I did. I brought a book that's called The Trouble with Women by Jackie Fleming. And I brought it because it has this little section on Emmy Neuther, and I wanted to read it. Okay. The conceit of this book is that women are very problematic, um, and it's very tongue-in-cheek in that way. It's sort of like, why did... Oh, women are such a trouble. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why didn't women contribute to history and all these things? And it's really just because women are terrible creatures. They can't even stand up on their own without corsets. They're so feeble, and <laughs> thinking too hard makes their hair fall out. Okay, right? I see what you mean about tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, so it describes... Emmy Neuther says, Emmy Neuther, mathematician, was this shape. And oh, this picture is, it's not very flattering. She's wearing a jacket that, I think this was probably a time when a hourglass figure would have been very liked. And this is straight down on either side. Yeah, this is, she's essentially wearing a box, it looks like. And it's yeah. black. And she has very sensible shoes on, I want to point out. And glasses and a briefcase. This is yeah. the shape of Emmy Nuther. Introducing her by her shape is, is a very uh, dismissive... It is. And then it goes on to say, Einstein described her as the most significant creative mathematical genius since women began, not since the world began, obviously. She wasn't actually paid or anything. And this is in reference to her working as a lecturer at the University of Göttingen, which I always pronounce a little bit funny, so I'll just assume that was right. David Hilbert got her onto the faculty, but they wouldn't pay her. Oh, she wow. was a woman. Also, this was around the time where no one wanted to learn math from Jews. So she, you know, yeah, she eventually had to leave along with Hilbert and other mathematicians. They sort of fled. She ended up at Bryn Mawr. The book goes well, on to say... she got out. Yes. Honestly. Honestly. The book goes on to say her students complained about her appearance, but she was oblivious. Her small brain was already full of the beautiful symmetry of the universe. And that's what she was studying. She was studying the symmetries, as you said, of conservation and things that are invariant. And the last page the book has on Emmy Neuther says, you see how pretty Emmy Neuther was before she damaged her prospects with too much algebra? That's the trouble with women. They always take things too far. So this is a younger This is a younger picture of her. Yeah, look at that waistline. Oh, she has the hourglass figure. And then she learned math. And then she learned math. So tongue in cheek. Yeah, no glasses here a bow at the neck, the, the, the dress is not black, um, oh probably goodness. a corset under there. I mean, you see her leaning on a chair for support, so she's still one of these feeble women with women legs, not man legs, from riding a bicycle <laughs> or things like that that are also in the book. But I, I always liked this, not just because of the tongue-in-cheek nature, which I do appreciate, but the, this line, that's the trouble with women, they always take things too far. I take that sort of personally because I study infinite sequences of things. And like for centuries, people were happy with the finite version. And I, I was happy with the finite version as a graduate student. And then I got into the infinite stuff and 
you know, there are people who would say that's like taking these Betty numbers, these Betty numbers, these infinite sequences of numbers with maybe some recursion later on down the line, maybe not. Uh, yeah, some people would say, Gibbons, you've taken it too far. And to which I would reply, that's the trouble with women. <laughs> always take things too far. It's interesting, though, you know, you mentioned this book introduces Emmy by her shape. After she died, she she wasn't at Bryn Mawr very long before she died of some kind of cancer. God, that's so tragic. It Just really is. How much more she could have contributed. I and... know, I know. It's it's sad. Like, there are some mathematicians like Gauss where I'm like, thank God Gauss eventually died because there would be no more math. He would have just done it all. But Emmy... <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a like very, there'd be nothing left for you to do yeah i'd be like gauss would have taken care of all of it and it would just have been like you know some stuff that like physicists needed done and we would have just been like but that's not a very constructive interpretation of mathematics Courtney. it's not it's that's not a very but uh, Gauss, discovery base it is but gauss was so freaking prolific he would have just constructed it all i think I, I, feel like I know that's physics, not realistic. There's, there's really no fear that we're going to finish physics and just be done with it. Yeah, I mean, there's not that fear in math either, but I guess the fear is that, like, it's, it becomes so technical and narrow, like, what you need to learn to get to that boundary. Oh, hasn't that already happened? It has, in it math. has. But imagine if Gauss had lived, like, another 10 years. Maybe, like, a dope like me could have gotten a PhD because Gauss would have already done the low. I, I hope you're being tongue-in-cheek I'm being, you call yourself I, a dope. I am being tongue-in-cheek, I tongue-in-cheek because well actually I mean like it doesn't really matter to me if I'm a dope or not as long as I can work on the problems I like and talk to people I like about the problems I'm very happy but um neither I'm very you know it's like I would have loved to have seen what more math she would have done because she's kind of where my research area starts with these rings and modules and I would be it would I would just like to know what else was she up to but her eulogy, um, the way she was eulogized by famous mathematicians at the time, they talked about her shape, how big she was, how coarse she was, how unfeminine, how they might not actually call her a woman officially. And it's pretty kind of a bummer that at that time it was like she traded in her woman card to do mathematics. I hope we've come from there. I hope we come far from there. I think we have in some ways and we haven't in, in others. I think the narrative shifts based on who's dominant and white women have come farther than most other women in math. And so we're accepted a little bit more easily. But, you know, I I have a friend who is sometimes mistaken for hotel staff at a conference because she's not a white woman. She's a Latina woman. And that just kind of breaks my heart that that's still happening, that a mathematician would go up to someone to hand her his plate without bothering to notice that she's got a conference name badge on. Ouch. So there's progress. It's often slow and incremental, which is frustrating. But. I know I was once uh, mistaken for staff when I was a grad student, and I was literally using an atomic force microscope at the time. Right, yeah. I actually, early on at Hamilton, I was at an event, and a very, very senior emeritus retired faculty member looked at my badge, which said Courtney Gibbons Mathematics, and said, I didn't know they gave those to students, which was an interesting moment. I was like... That's the lo- like. What kind of logic is that? They oh, don't. Sh- I'm really a professor. I know I look very jejune and and lively, and but like I'm also I have a I have three degrees in math. Well, I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess there are multiple views even among women in math that, and how you should take a, a comment like that. Some are like just take the compliment. Some are like raise hell. 
and I'm like kind of in the middle. I'm like, take the compliment and raise hell at the same time, but with a smile. And that's the trouble with women. They always take things too far. There you go. Courtney Gibbons, thank you so much for being my guest on Significant Figures. This is WHCL-FM, Clinton, New York.